Showing up at Wellesley, it was a place where women were the leaders. So this was a real eye-opener for me. And women's um, ambitions and aspirations were uh, not just recognized, but respected at Wellesley. And women's leadership was certainly held up uh, as a model uh, that we could all see for ourselves. There's no doubt that we have a series of very uh, difficult challenges facing us in the short term. Obviously, Ukraine being at the top of that list. And we have long-term challenges uh, such as climate change, such as dealing with uh, future pandemics that uh, we're going to have to do a better job in addressing. And the relationship between the United States and China is absolutely central to every challenge one can imagine. And it is important that we figure out a way to manage that relationship that is in our interests, in the interests of the United States. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Hillary Clinton. Hillary Rodham Clinton has spent over five decades in public service as an advocate, attorney, first lady, U.S. Senator, U.S. Secretary of State, and presidential candidate. In her four years as America's chief diplomat and President Obama's principal foreign policy advisor, she negotiated a ceasefire in Gaza, mobilized an international coalition to oppose sanctions against Iran, and championed human rights around the world. Earlier as First Lady and Senator for New York, she traveled to more than 80 countries as a champion of human rights, democracy, and opportunities for women and girls. She also worked to provide health care to millions of children, create jobs and opportunities, and to support first responders who risked their lives at ground zero. She is the author of 10 best-selling books, host of the podcast, You and Me Both, founder of the global production studio, Hidden Light Productions, chancellor of Queen's University, Belfast, and a professor of practice at the School of International and Public Affairs and presidential fellow at Columbia World Projects at Columbia University. So Hillary, welcome to the podcast. I've appreciated the opportunity to collaborate and work with you over the years, and I'm a long-term admirer of your drive and determination to make a difference in the world. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, and let's get started and begin with the early years. Like me, you grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. You were raised in Park Ridge, and I grew up about 30 miles away in Barrington. Talk a bit about your upbringing uh, and how it, it shaped your interest and values. Well, Hank, it's a pleasure to be uh, talking with you on your podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I am, um, like you, someone who is very grateful for the upbringing that I had um, in the 1950s and early 60s in the suburbs of Chicago. I was born in the city of Chicago. Uh, but moved out to Park Ridge, which is a northwest suburb, uh, probably when I was like three and a half or four. And 
I was really fortunate because I had the advantage of great public schools, great public parks, a great neighborhood uh, where, you know, in those days we played outside till it got too dark and had to come in. And we had not just our own parents looking out for us, but seemed like every parent in a five block radius was there to tell us if we weren't behaving or send us home or get us a message. And I'm very grateful for that kind of um, solid um, upbringing that uh, gave me a really good, strong foundation. We were very fortunate. And so many people today aren't blessed with that the same opportunities that we had. Now, an another connection we have is through Wellesley College. You're among the universities or the college's most distinguished alumni. And I'm not, of course, but I've attended more Wellesley reunions than any of my own because my wife, sister, mother, and grandmother all <laughs> went to Wellesley. And I've seen you there often. So what did you learn at Wellesley? And what did that school do to teach you about leadership and civic obligation? Well, Hank, we kind of consider you an honorary Wellesley alum uh, because, as you just said, uh, thanks to your absolutely wonderful wife, Wendy, my classmate, um, you have been a, a, a presence on campus and you and Wendy have been incredibly generous and supportive of the college. You know, I went to Wellesley at the um, instigation and inspiration um, of two young uh, teachers who were in my high school. I went to a very large public high school and there was a program called Masters in Teaching at Northwestern University. And these two young women teachers, one who had graduated from Smith and one who had graduated from Wellesley were assigned to Main Township High School South. And they were teaching uh, courses in government and I was uh, fortunate enough to have one of them as my teacher, and she asked me where I was going to go to college, and I really hadn't given a lot of thought to it. My mother had never gone to college, and my father went to Penn State on a football scholarship, which I knew was not in the cards for me. So I was not sure at all where I might end up, and, and she and her uh, friend, her co-teacher, began uh, talking to me about going to what they called the Seven Sisters. And I'm very glad they did. So I ended up applying and I ended up picking Wellesley without ever seeing it, partly because it was on a lake, which I thought was just so beautiful from the pictures that I had seen. So when I showed up to begin uh, my freshman year in the fall of 1965, um, it was the first time I'd seen the campus. And I have to say, I was intimidated. I was quite uh, sure I didn't belong. It seemed like every other student was much better prepared than me. Uh, so I called up uh, my family collect, uh, probably late September, early October, and said I wanted to come home. And my father, who uh, would have been happy for me to you know, go to any place nearby, said, sure, come ahead. And my mother said, don't you dare. You have to stay there. You have to, you know, stick it out. So uh, it was a great experience. I, I made friends of a lifetime. I had wonderful uh, professors. 
I had uh, just uh, a, a terrific um, both personal and educational experience. And now, Hillary, you've been a very effective advocate and role model for women in leadership. And I assume that your Wellesley education played a role here. It really did. You know, showing up at Wellesley, which, as we know, is an all women's college, after having been in a very large public high school, it was a place where women were the leaders. They were the leaders in class. They were the leaders in campus activities, in athletics, in uh, college government, in every aspect of the college's life. And that was new for me. Um, when I was growing up, I, I didn't know any women in professional life except probably my teachers and the librarians at our public library and women who were in retail establishments. But other than that, I had never really had a chance to meet uh, women who become professional in uh, business or academia or any other walk of life. So this was a real eye opener for me. And women's um, ambitions and aspirations were uh, not just recognized, but respected at Wellesley. And women's leadership was certainly held up uh, as a model uh, that we could all see for ourselves. What I saw was women who came from Wellesley College had a real self-confidence and a sense of purpose. And here that little college produced two secretaries of state, right? That's right. That's right. And and leaders in every walk of life, from the you know professional, the volunteer, you name it, around the world. And that's one of the great joys when I travel around the world is to meet women who went to Wellesley and uh, they're in their countries, they're, you know, being advocates, they're being activists, they're being involved in the work and the, and the social uh, change uh, of what uh, they see is needed. So yes, it's a, it's a wonderful community to be part of. It, it sure is. Now let's go to the bigger world. So let's talk about the state of our democracy. Many people have a sense that our democratic experiment is in a state of serious decline. What do you think are the biggest causes of our current political polarization and societal division? How much of this do you think is driven by technology and social media? How much of this is a consequence of economic disparity or demographic change? What's your diagnosis? Well, I think it's probably all of the above, plus uh, demagogues who exploit people's fears and anxieties. Uh, and it's also um, a reckoning uh, about how difficult it is in our very complicated world uh, for democracies to produce results uh, dealing with the whole range of challenges and problems we face. Uh, that are accepted by the body politic and are able to, you know, begin to deal with whether it's climate change or pandemics uh, or any other uh, difficult uh, issue. You know, I've thought a lot about this, Hank, because uh, clearly it's distressing uh, for all of us to see what's happening not only in our own country, but in other democracies. And I think, you know, the people who say that there's a, a competition between democracy and autocracy are absolutely right. Uh, that 
you know, there has to be a recognition by those of us lucky enough to live in democracies. You know, this is not to be taken for granted. So what does that mean? I think it means trying to, against great odds of polarization and fragmentation and divisiveness, uh, find some common ground and some common uh, solutions. I do think all of these issues are exacerbated by the role of social media. I think now quite uh, credible evidence that social media uh, intensifies division. It also intensifies anxiety and depression and insecurity, particularly among young people, but frankly, also people not so young which then make people more vulnerable to uh, messages of further uh, divisiveness. So we're kind of in a, a vicious circle here of people who intend to take advantage of um, the legitimate concerns that people have about the economy or climate or pandemic or whatever, um, and want to exploit those for their own benefit. And social media, which basically addicts many to the algorithms that direct you to very negative uh, content. So I wish that everybody could take a deep breath and say, wait a minute, we don't want to live like this. Uh, we don't want to live with our fingers pointing at each other. We don't want to live exploiting our differences. We want to find this common ground among us and uh, try to you know, be mature and, and smart enough to uh, find ways to come together. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I look for a raise of hope here, it's clear that the majority of the American people are somewhere in the middle, right? Right. But we have a primary system that forces, you know, both parties often to to, to the left or, or to the right. And right. So have a primary system that, uh, that, that <laughs> really... Uh, often give us candidates that are representative of the uh, of the people overall. But anyway, this is going to be the huge challenge. And there is a competition between a, autocracy and, and uh, you know, and, and democracy. And technology is playing a big role in that. And uh, as we look ahead. Now, let's talk about America's role in the world. When you were Secretary of State, you placed a big emphasis on Americans, America's role in the Pacific. In fact, you wrote an important essay in foreign policy in 2011, arguing that one of the most important tasks of American statecraft over the next decade will be to look lock in a substantially increased investment, diplomatic, economic, strategic, and otherwise, in the Asia Pacific. Why is this so important for America? Well, I think that um, there's no doubt uh, that we have uh, a series of very uh, difficult challenges facing us uh, in the short term, uh, obviously uh, Ukraine being at the top of that list. Uh, and we have long-term challenges uh, such as climate change, such as dealing with uh, future pandemics, uh, that uh, we're going to have to do a better job in addressing. The relationship between the United States and China is absolutely central to every challenge one can imagine. It is important that we figure out a way to manage that relationship that 
is in our interests, in the interests of the United States, in the interests of dealing with these long-term international global challenges like climate change, like uh, pandemics, that sends a clear message to China that we wish it would be in that very well-known phrase, a responsible stakeholder uh, in international affairs. And it is something that I think we were recognizing and trying to deal with in the first, you know, 15 years of the 21st century and that we lost ground on uh, because we didn't have a coherent policy for the prior administration. I think the current administration is trying to reestablish the guardrails and the kind of rules of the road, if you will, as to how we deal with uh, China. In fact, I think as you and I are recording this podcast, John Kerry, our climate envoy, is in China meeting with his counterparts. We can't solve, we can't even mitigate the you know, problems of climate change if we don't have China right there in the lead with us. There's no way to get where we need to go. We obviously can't deal with pandemics if we aren't more honest, straightforward, above board, and dealing with each other in terms of what we are going to be facing, and the list goes on. So I think there's no doubt that if we intend to continue to lead the world, and I think it's in the world's interest as well as our own that the United States does that, uh, we have to manage our relationship with China, and we have to make it clear what our you know expectations are and where we can find ways to work together and try to uh, really handle as best we can uh, the threats, whether it's Taiwan, um, an increasing uh, nuclear arsenal, other kinds of aggressive behavior in the broader uh, Pacific by China, which requires us to do as we are now doing, strengthen our alliances with um, our both treaty partners and other nations so that we present more of a united front in dealing with China so that China doesn't feel isolated, but they understand that there's a, a very strong consensus on the part of Japan, South Korea, Australia, the Philippines, India now, uh, about the kind of uh, world we want to help build together. Yeah, I could not agree with you anymore. You know, we need to be strong diplomatically, economically, militarily, uh, but we also need to have a policy, a coherent policy, which is difficult given the politics in Washington. Yes. Very, very difficult. But we need to have one where we do things that make sense for the United States of America. We don't want to, in an effort to punish China, end up isolating ourselves for, from the rest of the world. That's they, right. They want a security relationship with the U.S., but they want an economic relationship with China. Yes. And, and you know, Hank, I think it's... It's really bewildering to me how there are voices in our own uh, country in Washington, as you say, that seem to think isolationism is in our interest, which it is not, seem to think that, you know, bellicose rhetoric uh, is uh, a good substitute for coherent policy, which it is not, um, seem to downgrade uh, America's strength and our uh, determination. There is no country in the world better positioned for leadership than the United States, in part because 
not just of our values, but our pluralistic uh, diversity that gives us a, a foundation of, of strength to deal with every part of the world. So I can understand scoring political points, but I don't understand how anybody could really believe what some of uh, uh, the voices out of Washington are saying. Absolutely. It's sometimes as I listen to them, it's hard to believe whether it's ignorance or politics that are leading people to say some of the things they're saying. So Hillary, I'd like to now talk about another autocrat who poses a real challenge. Vladimir Putin was someone you dealt with directly as Secretary of State, and you were very rightly concerned about the risks he posed to the world order. No one knows how and when the war in Ukraine will end, but it's clear that the Russian invasion has changed the world in fundamental ways. What do you think is the best path forward here for America? Well, you're right. I did deal with him. And um, I was quite concerned when I was Secretary of State about his um, rather messianic, uh, imperialistic uh, views about Russia's role. And I thought his uh, commitment to restoring the Russian Empire uh, as a uh, dominant force in both uh, Europe and Central Asia. And as you may well know, uh, he was quite unhappy with me in uh, my outspoken efforts to uh, differentiate between his worldview and our own, and to make it clear uh, that he was in many ways holding back progress for Russia. You know, outside of the major cities uh, like Moscow, St. Petersburg, obviously, you know, the standard of living for the Russian people, certainly their freedoms and their autonomy has slowly shrunk under Putin's now 23-year leadership. So when he invaded Georgia in 2008, I thought that was a, uh, a serious uh, signal that uh, he was not going to play by the rules of diplomacy and persuasion, but in fact, going to use aggression to take territory that he wanted for Russia. And when he invaded uh, Ukraine the first time in 2014, I thought that uh, the world, including the United States at that time, but certainly Europe, uh, were not sufficiently uh, concerned by that aggressive behavior. Uh, when his proxies shot down the Malaysian airline, uh, killing, I think, 298 people, there was outrage, um, but there was, you know, minor sanctions. And I think with Putin, he really does follow the old, you know, Leninist uh, axiom, you know, push with the scalpel as far as you can go until you hit bone. And if nobody is standing up to him and pushing back on him, uh, he, whether it's in his own country with oligarchs, with the press, with dissidents of all kinds, he will try to kill them, <laughs> poison them, throw them out windows, whatever he can. Uh, and so his personality, his character should have been well known to us. Now, with respect to his invasion uh, last year, I think several things prompted it. One, 
he hoped that Trump would win again. Uh, there's no doubt he helped Trump win the first time. And Trump was quite uh, amenable to uh, supporting Putin's agenda. And we know from people who worked in the Trump administration, most, um, I think, um, outspokenly John Bolton, that if Trump had won again, he would have pulled the United States out of NATO. So for Putin, it made sense to wait. You know, let's just wait. I may get what I want without having to do very much to get it. Well, thankfully, Trump did not win. And even more thankfully, um, Biden and his team were able to begin to knit together the transatlantic alliance and particularly uh, NATO. And I think that was a surprise to Putin because when he invaded, um, he thought, number one, he could uh, once again sort of fool the rest of the world through uh, what's called a false flag operation and was actually planning to try to set up some encounter so that it looked like Ukrainians had attacked his his troops or his people, which would have then given him an excuse. And brilliantly, um, our intelligence community, working with um, the intelligence communities of our allies, you know, revealed that information. And that prevented Putin from being able to disguise his invasion. So the other thing that happened is that when you're a dictator, when you're a leader for life, as he now is, um, people only tell you what they think you want to hear. So all of his intelligence about Ukraine was it would be cakewalk, no problem. You'd be in Kiev in a week. You would, you know, behead the government, basically take it over, install a puppet. All would be well. And he didn't count on the bravery and the courage and the, frankly, smarts of the Ukrainian government and people to uh, defend themselves. So where we are now is I don't think there's any end to this that is really um, in our interests other than what can be fairly perceived as a Ukrainian victory. Now, what does that mean? Well, if Ukraine can take back the territory that it has lost in the invasion starting in 2022, which would then exclude Crimea and the Donbass, there might be an opportunity to persuade the Ukrainians to um, enter into some kind of negotiations or to view it as a frozen conflict in return for NATO troops being stationed on their borders. At this point, I don't think Ukraine would accept that. I think Ukraine is now determined under Zelensky's leadership to try to get as much of their territory back as possible. But it's a slog, Hank. It's a slog. And everybody's running out of you know, literally ammunition. And we have done a lot to support Ukraine, but it's only been shy of 5% of our defense budget. And it has been a necessary uh, action to protect ourselves and to protect our already existing NATO allies. So right now, um, I think we have to do everything we can to help Ukraine take as much territory back as possible. And then in the winter, kind of at near the two-year mark, uh, take stock of where we are. If we're fortunate enough to get there, the process of rebuilding this country economically will begin. Yes. Because it's, <clears throat> it's so much of it has been destroyed. Hillary, this has been a uh, a terrific interview, but I'd like to close with your advice to our young listeners. What advice do you give students who are navigating their lives and careers in today's rapidly changing world? 
Oh, I think about this a lot. You know, I now have three grandchildren. I think you have four, Hank. Um, and I think mine are a lot younger than yours. Uh, so clearly, I am pretty obsessed with what's going to happen to young people um, in our country and, and elsewhere around the world. And I have a lot of young people who work for me and a lot of young people I interact with at the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Global Initiative and, and other of my activities. And I get asked all the time, um, you know, what, what I think is going to happen or how they can best maneuver in a quite uncertain world um, from their perspective. And I guess I would say a couple of things. I, I, I mean, I always start with education. I mean, there is there is no way to prevent change happening in the world. We are seeing it at an increasingly rapid pace. We have no idea what artificial intelligence is going to do to us, for us, uh, going forward. Um, and and just to be as well educated, to be as well prepared as you possibly can, because that's the only insurance policy that you have to try to navigate a fast changing world like the one we're in. Secondly, get off your screens, get out into the real world, spend time with real people, uh, your friends, uh, neighbors, um, volunteer at your you know, church or synagogue or community organization um, and be a really careful consumer of social media. Do not go down those rabbit holes that the algorithms are addicting you to and sending you down. Uh, no good can come of that. And it can also undermine uh, your own self-confidence and your own sense of identity. Uh, find a way to serve. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways to serve. You and I have been fortunate um, to be in public service. Some people are in military service. Some people are in you know, a form of, you know, faith-based service or community activities, find a way to serve. And even if it's just working at a food bank, you know, a couple hours on a Saturday afternoon, find a way to get out of your comfort zone, get out of your bubble and, and go out and be with other people. And, and I guess finally, you know, follow your dream and your passion and nobody can tell you what that is. That has to come from who you are, what's inside of you, um, but keep searching till you find it. And and of course you want to make a good living. Of course you want to have enough, you know, financial resources to, you know, make decisions for yourself and maybe in the future a family. Um, but also make sure what you're doing in your, you know, professional world, your career, your workplace. Um, is satisfying because life goes by really fast. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you if you look back, it's like that wonderful book written by Rabbi um, Harold Kushner, which starts with the, the line, nobody on his deathbed ever says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. I mean, find other sources of meaning and purpose um, in your life. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean it's the same thing for your entire life, hopefully a long life. But you know, get started and, and find your way forward and find it with purpose and joy. Hillary, that's terrific. And I really love the part about get off of social media and, and connect with the real world. Yeah. Nothing drives me crazier than when I talk to someone and they say, well, I've sent him or her an email or a text. <laughs> Have you talked with them? Right. Yeah. But anyway, great advice. Uh, 
Hillary, this has been terrific. You've given our listeners a lot to think about. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Hank, and and happy rest of the summer for you and and Wendy. Same back to you. (laughs) Thanks. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.